This Torah 101 podcast is dedicated in honor of Dina Bat Esther, and it is sponsored generously by her family, and we thank him so much for the support. If you want to sponsor an upcoming episode of Torah 101 or any one of my other podcasts, please email me, rabbiwolby at gmail.com. We are in the midst of an intensive effort to try to gain literacy in what Torah exactly is. I think before we can make any judgment about anything, we ought to be sufficiently versed in what exactly that thing is. And I think the question of how we relate to Torah, well, that's the most important question that a Jew has to make. If you accept the Torah as divine and binding, then your life has to be in accordance with Torah. Well, if Torah is not divine and binding, well, it could be nice. It could be an important cultural artifact. It could be historical. It could be interesting. It could be inspiring. It could be thought-provoking. It could be challenging. But ultimately, it would not have the teeth to guide your life. And therefore, it's very important to try to figure out what our relationship with Torah is going to be. But I think before we make any considerations or any assessments, it's very important for us to have a basic understanding of what it actually even means when we say Torah. And we have been the past couple of weeks in middle of demystifying oral Torah. And we spoke about its long history and the various additions that were added to the oral Torah, the, the various decrees and the edicts and the clarifications. And as the body kept on growing since Moses, and we talked about the challenges that faced the perpetuation of oral Torah. It was no longer possible to maintain it in a completely oral fashion and thus, fateful decisions were made to commit it to a finalized, canonized form. And that, of course, started with the Mishnah, which is a distinct distillation of Torah law. Succinct, though not short, it consists of 63 books. And then came the Talmud. And we spoke about the various components of the Talmud. The majority of the Talmud is the elaboration and explanation of the laws of the Mishnah. We have a law in the Mishnah. Well, what are the details? What are the sources? What are the exceptions? What are the qualifications? What are all the components needed to truly understand the law of the Mishnah that was written in a very pithy fashion? But there's also the Agadata. And the Agadata is the writing down the secrets of oral Torah, but done in a way that precludes all but the worthiest from truly understanding it. But there's still a major piece of oral Torah that we need to discuss, and that is the halacha. And today, I want to answer the questions of what is halacha? How does it qualify, or why does it qualify as oral Torah? What is the halachic process? And how does it fit in to the grand development and codification of oral Torah that began nearly 2,000 years ago with the writing down of the Mishnah? And I think the best place to start to try to get a sense of what halacha is and how it fits in to the framework that we've built hitherto is to look at the introduction 
to his monumental work, Mishnah Torah, wherein the Rambam guides us in the halachic process and the need to codify halacha that continued after the Talmud was already written and why he chose to write his book and how he viewed his book as the authoritative text, as the authoritative canon of oral Torah. And he begins by analyzing the state of Torah after the Talmud was written. So we have a tremendous body of oral Torah literature. You know, of course, we have the written Torah, and then we have an absolute explosion of oral Torah literature as well. We have, of course, the Mishnah, and then we have the elaboration of the Mishnah in both the Jerusalem Talmud and in, of course, the Babylonian Talmud. And we have all the accompanying works like Sifra, Sifri, Tosefta. We talked about the Brysis in the past. And this tremendous body of literature, the authoritative canon of oral Torah, if you study it all and you become a true expert in it all, you know the answers to all the practical questions. You know what is permitted and what's prohibited. You know what's kosher and what's non-kosher. You know what's liable, who's liable in every given case, and what is exempt. You know what's fit for use, and you know what's not fit for use. If you have all this body of, of literature, and you know it really well, you know halacha. Halacha means the practical application of the laws of the oral Torah. You know exactly how to behave in every given scenario, in every situation, you can be guided by Torah, by oral Torah, to know how to act. Halacha means to walk. You know how to walk, how to live in a Torah true fashion. We have, again, a tremendous body, and it contains both the explanation of the oral Torah as conveyed to us by Moshe, but it also has, like we mentioned in the past, the prophylactic edicts, all the rabbinic edicts that were added to make sure that oral Torah is not encroached upon. And we have all the various decrees and customs and laws and statutes that were determined via the 13 methods of derivation. We have all of law. And all of it is included, of course, in the Talmud and the associated literature. And we have the Talmud, which is the last book of its kind. All the other works of oral Torah have been written. And thus, we've reached the end of an era. This is the end of the era of the transmitters of oral Torah. And we have everything we need, ostensibly. And the Talmud was considered so authoritative, the entire Jewish people accepted it. And it was disseminated throughout all of Israel. Even Jews who were living in far-flown places, they accepted as binding the rulings of the Talmud. But now we're at a very important juncture in history. The Talmud's been written, and it's written under the auspices of a collection of sages never again matched, at least not till Messianic times, never again matched in history. And there's never going to be a court 
that holds the same authority as the court of Rav Ashi that wrote the Talmud, and the Jews are going to be dispersed, and there's going to be upheaval in the world, and there's going to be war, and what now? How do we have a situation in which the Jewish people can have spiritual continuity and guidance and instruction of how to live when the sages are scattered? And the amount of people that can go through all of Talmud and to be able to distill from all of Talmud the halacha, to know it all, to have all that tremendous body of literature organized and understood and to know exactly what goes where, and to have it all make sense and fit in, the amount of people that could do that are very few. And they're not everywhere. And that's what the Ramam is kind of setting up for us here, is a need to take oral Torah development to the next stage. And what this means is, you have all the answers, but they're found in an entire library. And they're not organized in a way that makes easy reference for lay people or even for scholars, but scholars that don't know all of Talmud by heart, it's not organized in a way for it to be easy to use. It's not given to people in a way that's totally referenceable and you just know where to go to find a specific law. It's not exactly user-friendly. What he's highlighting is the fact that when the Talmud was written, it was written in a way, just like when the Mishnah was written, it was written in a way that still necessitated a certain degree of oral tradition. And now that that becomes more difficult to perpetuate, we have the same problem that led to the writing down of the Mishnah and to the writing of the Talmud. Now there is a need to write down the halacha, or to organize and codify the halacha in a way that is accessible to all. No longer do we have the authority to contradict the laws of the Talmud and the rulings of the Talmud. No longer do we have a court that has the same authority as the Sanhedrin that the court of Rav Ashi, the author, the architect of the Talmud has. Now we must use the rulings of the Talmud, and that could be the only way we derive halacha, but how are we going to do it? Now, he talks also about the idea, this is a little bit of a adjacent point, but he talks about the idea that only a Sanhedrin, which is the Supreme Court of the Jewish people, only if they have the power to institute a new edict, a new decree that is binding for all of Israel. So the Talmud, because the majority of the sages were privy to its writing and redaction, that has the equivalent power of the Sanhedrin. But after the Talmud's been written, you no longer have a, a court with that power, and thus... There is no longer a single body amongst the Jewish people that can make a ruling, an edict, rabbinic law, some sort of decree that is binding for all of Israel. So what you would need if you want to have something which is binding, a new rabbinic custom, a new decree, a new edict, you would have to have A, 
a authority that has jurisdiction on a given location, and B, you would have to have that particular decree, edict, or custom accepted by all, at least all the people of that given province. And this is kind of the Ramam telling us how the Ashkenazic and Sephardic Jewry developed different customs. Because for a long time, Jews living under Christian rule were called generally Ashkenazim, and Jews living under Muslim rule were called Sephardim. And they didn't really have any overlap. So you have two separate concurrent, so to speak, communities, and there were edicts that were instituted in one but not the other, and there were other customs and edicts and decrees that were in the other place but not in the original place. And thus we have, for example, the prohibition of kitnios, which is rice and peanuts and corn. Are we allowed to eat that in Pesach? It's not chametz, it's not leavened bread, it's not grain, at least not by halachic standards. But it's kind of similar. You can have cornbread. It kind of looks like bread. Maybe those two could be confused. So in the Ashkenazic world, there was a decree that was accepted by all of Ashkenazic Jewry to ban or to make a, to a new prohibition against what's called kitnios on Pesach. This was only accepted by Ashkenazic Jewry and not by Sephardic Jewry. And thus, until today, we have a decree that is binding for Ashkenazic Jewry because it was accepted by all of Ashkenazic Jewry. But it's totally fine for someone who is part of the Sephardic community to eat as much corn and rice and peanuts as they want on Pesach. Similarly, the what's called Cherum de Rabbeinu Gershon, the Edict of Rabbeinu Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom was the undisputed leader of Ashkenazic Jewry in the 11th century. In fact, he was called Rabbeinu Gershom Meor Hagola, Rabbeinu Gershom, the light of the exile. And he made a series of decrees, three decrees, that were accepted universally by the Ashkenazic Jews, but not by the Sephardic Jews. And they are, number one, the prohibition against polygamy, that a man can have one wife and one wife alone, and that's it, not two wives. The prohibition against unilateral divorce, both sides have to be on board for divorce to be halakhically valid, and the prohibition against opening up and reading someone else's correspondences. And this decree, or this set of decrees, were accepted only by Ashkenazic Jews, but if you're a Sephardic Jew and you want to have more than one wife, let's say, go at it. It would be fine. On the flip side, you have the recitation of the Slichot, for example, which the Sephardic custom has been to begin it from the first day of Elul, and thus they have 40 days of Slichot, which is the prayers that we say before the high, the high holidays, and that was accepted only by the Sephardic communities, but not by Ashkenazic communities that begins the week before Rosh Hashanah. Okay, let's go back to the Rambam. So we have an understanding of what the Talmud is. It is essentially the stand-in for the Sanhedrin, and this is the last ruling, so to speak, of the Sanhedrin, and that is that the Talmud is authoritative, and this is the last work of its kind, the last work of the transmitters of oral Torah. But what now? How do we process 
the Talmud into a way that is understandable. So what happens was that there was a generation called the Geonim. And these were the great sages that came after the Talmudic era. And their role is to explain the Talmud. Again, they're working now post the Talmud. It's only built upon the Talmud. And these were great sages whose job was to study the Talmud. And Talmud is written very intricately and it's very deep. And it's written in an unusual language. It's in Aramaic, but it has a mixture of all kinds of other languages, which was common at the time, but today it's still foreign, or even at the time the Rama was foreign. So we have the great sages who are well-versed in the Talmud, and their role is to explain the Talmud to the masses. And thus we have an era of the Gaonim, it's about three, 400 years, where the contributions to Jewish to Torah, to Halacha, to scholarship, and to literature is in explaining of the Talmud. So these Geonim, they got multitudes of questions because people in every community would read the Talmud. This is binding Halacha for the Jewish people, but what does it mean? And how do we process it? And how do we understand it? So they would write letters to the Geonim, and the Geonim would clarify the Talmud. And every one of those questions and answers was compiled into books of responsa literature. And they also wrote books to explain the Talmud. Some of them to explain certain laws, individual laws. Some of them to explain certain chapters that were difficult to understand in their times. Some of them that explain entire books of Talmud, entire orders of Talmud. And some of them wrote actual finalized works of halacha to say what's permitted and what's prohibited and what's allowed and what's not allowed, as was needed in their time. But the Rambam now takes it to his time. Today, people don't even understand the rulings of the Gaonim. People's minds are weaker. The language is a little bit different. People are not as committed to scholarship. And certainly studying the Talmud in order to reach the finalized halacha is infeasible for most. And certainly to study both Talmuds and all the other associated literature, to be able to know how to rule in every given situation, to know the halacha, that is something which is very difficult even for the greatest scholar in the world. So we have a problem. We have everything we need but it's not organized and distilled. Therefore, says the Rambam, I have girded my loins, me, Moshe ben Maimon, Moshe the son of Maimon, the Spaniard. He was from Spain, the Sephardi. And I relied on God. And he guided me to write the authoritative book of Halacha. And thus you should know what is permitted and what is prohibited, what is pure, what is impure, and all the laws of the Torah. All in clear language, and in in concise formulization, so that all of oral Torah should be clearly organized without any questions, without any dialogue, without any debate, without any doubt, and without someone saying like this and someone saying like that, without any confusion. Rather clearly, everything that makes sense, everything as per the instructions the Talmud and all the 
other literature. And all the laws would be revealed to everyone, to a great sage and to a small sage in every mitzvah in the Torah. And that will include everything. It will include all the conclusions of the Talmud and all the decrees and edicts that were added all the way since the beginning of time. The bottom line, and he ends with this very provocative statement, all you'll need to have a complete knowledge of Torah is a book of Bible, a book of written Torah, and my set of books, which will include and incorporate all of oral Torah, and that is all that you will need. And that's why I called my book Mishnah Torah, which means the complete repetition of Torah, because a person reads written Torah, and then a person reads my book Mishnah Torah, and you have everything, all the laws, all the details, all the conclusions, all the halacha, without any of the confusion. What a amazing undertaking. And the Rambam explained to us the problem and the reason why he had to act. Everything's available in the Talmud. And to a, a smaller extent, all the related works. But distilling it down to practical halacha, how must I act? That requires a great scholar to determine. And this seemingly continues this pattern of the oral Torah being written, but not completely. You know, the Talmud, it sets out to determine all the laws or all the details of laws of the Mishnah, but it doesn't summarize its conclusions. It doesn't give us like an abstract that gives us the bottom line. All the deliberations eventually end but what now? Like, what's the takeaway? What's the crystallized law and halacha that emerges? That is not done for us in the Talmud. The bottom line is not there. And you never really know where the bottom line is because there is all kinds of deliberations and it's possible that there is an opinion amidst this deliberations that was rejected. But it was rejected for a specific reason. And thus... In the event that that reason is not present, then that particular position would still be true even after it's ostensibly rejected. And the Talmud is vast. And you don't know exactly where in the Talmud to find the answer to a given question. The same subject can appear in multiple places in the Talmud. Also, the Talmud brings all kinds of opinions. And often it tells us the halacha follows this opinion. But most of the time, it doesn't tell us that. So which opinion does the halacha follow? Consequently, only a truly accomplished scholar can derive halacha from the Talmud. And after Talmud is written, the responsibility to translate the Talmud for lay people, to give us the halacha, that was done by the Gaonim. But their interpretation, says the Ramam, it ceased resonating. And there was a need for a comprehensive solution. And says the Rambam, I'm going to do that for you. The Rambam's goal in writing his code was to achieve the same universality as the Mishnah did with the distinct laws, as the Talmud with the elaboration of the Mishnah. And he sought to write the authoritative book of Halacha that would, again, distill all the conclusions of the Talmud and give you just the bottom line. Now, it's important to note, the Rambam was not the first sage 
of that era to work on distilling halacha from the Talmud. There was a great sage whose name was Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi, most likely Rabbi Yitzchak from Fez, and he lived from 1013 to 1103. And he wrote a book that is found in the back of all full-sized standard editions of the Talmud. And what this book does is it gives us a digest of the Talmud. It omits all the agadic teachings, all the non-halachic, non-legal teachings, and it gives us the conclusions, essentially, of the Talmud. And by the way, last time we spoke about the Agadata and how it has a whole different set of rules than learning what's called the Shemites, the laws of the Talmud, one way to discern if a law or if a teaching or if a citation in the Talmud is part of the body of Shmaitza, of law or Agarata, which is all the non-law stuff, part of the way to determine that is to find out if it is featured in Alfasi's digest. Because it's a digest of just the halacha. It pairs down all the confusing dialogue and it gives us just the bottom line. Or just the bottom line, but in the the these same in the same verbiage, shall we say, of the Talmud. So there was already a beginning of an effort to try to do this, to try to distill halacha from the Talmud. But the Ramam's work was totally revolutionary. Because what he did is he decoupled halacha from the Talmud. So we have books of Talmud. And the Butch Talmud is it's like a whole mess. It's a whole mixture of all kinds of stuff. And you have laws related to that particular book of Talmud. But you also have all kinds of other laws that find their way in. It seems like a total mishmash. What the Ram does is he doesn't follow the Talmudic order. He doesn't say, okay, these are the laws of this book, and these are the laws of this book, and these are the laws of this book. He doesn't associate the halacha from its origin. He doesn't trace its roots from the Talmud. All he does is he organizes all of law, all of oral Torah, based upon his own system of 14 books, which are general, 14 general subjects, and broken down into specific subjects, broken down into chapters, and broken down into what's called halachos, the individual laws. And it's his totally brand new way of doing things, totally divorced from the order of the Talmud. I'm going to collect it all and reorganize it in a way that is topical. That's, that was his idea. And there's no mention of the Talmud in it. He doesn't tell you every law. Okay, you'll find this law in this book of the Talmud. And he doesn't tell you, oh, this law goes with this opinion of the Talmud over here, but not like that opinion. He doesn't confuse you with any so to speak, deliberations that led him to his result, it's all simplified. All the law, the layman and the scholar alike can walk into the room, open it up to any page, and you see, okay, law after law after law, just, just the bottom line. No dialogue, no confusion, everything clear, laid out beautifully. And what's interesting about it is that although the Ramam intended it to be a work for all. Everyone knows the halacha now. Interestingly, 
it became essentially a work for the scholars almost exclusively. Because what he didn't do for us is make all those connections. He doesn't show us where he gets his rulings from. He doesn't trace his laws back to the Talmud. And thus, there is a lot of investigative space carved out for the scholars. The Ram does not attribute his sources. He doesn't tell you how he arrives at his conclusions. And thus, the great scholars spend a lot of time and effort to try to retrace his step and reverse engineer how the Rambam arrived at his conclusions. You read the Rambam and you read the corresponding text in the Talmud. You know that this is the law that the Rambam is referring to. And you read the entire Talmud very clearly and you come up with your conclusion, so to speak, of how you would distill this Talmud into halacha. And then you open up the, the Rambam himself and he comes out with an opposite conclusion. And you know for sure that there's no way you study this Talmud and the Ramam didn't study it or that you know it better than he does. That's not feasible once you have any familiarity with such a titanic sage. Yet, he arrives at the opposite conclusion that you would have arrived at if you were tasked with distilling the Talmud to Halacha. And what that does is that forces you to find a different interpretation in the Talmud where you, so to speak, and the Ramam departed and you have to figure out based upon what you know from his conclusions, you have to figure out how he arrived at that conclusion. This is some of the advanced uh, Talmudic inquiry that is done in, in yeshiva. So apparently everything now is settled. The Rambam did for Halacha what the architects of the Talmud, Ravina Ravashi, did for the Talmud, what Rabbi Judah the Prince did for the Mishnah. We now have a finalized version of Halacha, the conclusions of the Talmud, for all. Right? Well, not exactly. The Rambam's vision was not adopted by all of Israel. And there are some problems with mass adoption of his approach. So first of all, the Rambam was a one-man show. The Mishnah and the Talmud, that was written under the auspices of all, or at least the majority of the sages of Israel. The Rambam's work is his alone. So it's not the same collaborative effort that led to the Mishnah and the Talmud being written down. Moreover, there were areas in Halacha where the Rambam's rulings were in opposition to all of his peers. There was also this lack of transparency. He did not attribute his sources. We don't know where he gets it from. And that gives some of the scholars pause. Wait a minute. Ostensibly, this comes from all of Talmud, but we have no idea where it comes from. Sometimes the Ram drops laws and you literally search all of Talmud and all of the associated literature and you cannot find it. And then some sage, like hundreds of years later, says, aha, if you read this particular citation of the Talmud and you read it this way, that's where he gets his law from. Again, but he is totally moot on that question and there's this lack of transparency problem. Moreover, the tradition that he followed, like we mentioned earlier, was the Sephardic tradition. We have, for several hundred years, by the time the Ramam is around, we have concurrent Jewish communities and concurrent sages, some living under Muslim rule, the Sephardim, and some living under Christian rule, and they really don't have any dialogue between the two. 
And because the Rambam was living under the Sephardic rule or the, the Muslim rule, and thus he was he was Sephardic, it was not a universal code because it did not include the customs and the laws and the edicts of the Ashkenazic world. As such, with some notable exceptions, the Rambam's work was not accepted as the final word in halacha. The Yemenite community, as an example, did accept the Rambam as the last word in halacha. And this community just reads the Rambam, that's it. That's it. If he says it, it's true. If not, doesn't matter. That We just ignore it. But they're the exception. And thus, the pursuit for codifying halacha continued. So we have the riff, again, the, the digest of Talmud, with just the halachic conclusions in the back of the Talmud, following the order of the Talmud. And we have the Rambam with his unique formula of 14 books divided up into topics. And then we have, as well, in the Ashkenazic world, we have great halachic codifiers as well, the greatest of them being the Rush, Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, 1250 to 1327, I did not mention the Rambam, he was 1135 to 1204, and also some other notable names in the Ashkenazic world, efforts to codify halacha, Mahrami Rottenberg, Arzarua, Mordechai, and the tour, as we shall talk about in a second. Now, incidentally, the Rush, the greatest of the Ashkenaz, the greatest of the Ashkenazic halachic codifiers, he was one of the few sages that actually did have visibility into both Ashkenazic and Sephardic worlds because he lived in Germany, but he was on a, on a trip and he ended up in Spain. And this great Ashkenazic sage was offered the rabbinic position in, in, uh, in Spain. And thus he became a rabbi over the Sephardic world. And he accepted that. And that was just an interesting, uh, merging, so to speak, of these two worlds. Now, the next great, so to speak, development or innovation that happened in Halacha in this era was done not by the Rush that we mentioned earlier, Rabbi Asher ben Yechiel, but his son, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, who became known as the Tur or the Arba'a Turim. He also committed himself to write a unique work of Halacha and he began again from scratch of deciding how to organize it. So the Rush wrote his halakhic conclusions following the order of the Talmud, just like the Rif. The Rif, the Rush, following the order of the Talmud. Open up the back of any full-size standard edition of the Talmud, you'll find the digest of the Talmud of, of the Rif, of Rabbi Alfasi, Rabbi Yitzhak Alfasi, and you'll find also the halakhic works of the Rush, Rabbi Usher ben Yechiel. His son became known as the Tour, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, he organized all of halacha, not according to the Talmud, and not according to the Rambam's 14 books, but into four general sections, which he called the four Turim, which means the four pillars, and thus his book is the Arba Turim. Sometimes it is shortened to the Tour, which means the pillar. And one of these four pillars, one of them is called Orech Chaim, which means just Jewish living, the way to live, and that's all the laws related to, to kind of uh, the spiritual living. 
Yoredea, this is the ritualistic laws. Again, this is very simplified, but that's what it means. Evena Ezer, which means the, or which refers to the laws of marriage and divorce. And Choshen Mishpat, which is all the financial and uh, and and legal and, and damages interpersonal stuff, monetary stuff, all that is fi- found in in Choshen Mishpat. And what he did, and what he does, is he tries to intersperse all the teachings, both of the Rambam and of his father, and his own conclusions in this new way. Today, it's published in twenty-two volumes, the magisterial work of Halacha of the Tour. So, what now? We have the book to end all books, the Rambam's book, the Mishnah Torah. It does achieve immortality, but it doesn't succeed to become the final book of Halacha. We also have the Rif and the Rush and the Arzaruah and the Mordechai and the Tur, and we have all the other great writings of the Rishonim, which is the sages from the era, essentially the medieval era from the year 1000 to the year 1500. And they wrote voluminous commentaries in all of Talmud, incredible amounts of response of the Rambam. Of course, we spoke of uh, the Ramban, the Rashba, and on and on. What do we do? We have such a boom of halachic literature that you could argue that we just replaced the problem that we had with the new problem. Because now you just replaced a bookshelf filled with intricate works on the Talmud, now with a new library of halachic literature of all types, from the Rishonim, you're back to square one, there's too many options, and it hasn't really been simplified, because it was simplified too much, and now it's more complicated than ever. So what now? How is halacha determined when you have all these works to really do the job, and they're in disagreement with each other, and now you don't know what to do. How do you choose what to follow? So to address this problem, one of the pivotal characters in Jewish history stepped up and forever changed the landscape of Jewish living, and his name was Rabbi Yosef Karo. Now, I've gotten emails, i got lots of grief of how to pronounce his name. Is it Rabbi Yosef Karo? Is it Rabbi Yosef Cairo? This is not the name that I get the most grief on. That would belong to uh, the title, that honorific would belong to Esau, Jacob's twin brother. Is it Esau? Is it Esau? Is it Esau? I don't know. But that's something that it's been, it's been a bane. The bane of my existence has pronounced that particular name. I just settled. I'm just going to go with the Hebrew Esau. And if you can't deal with that, you have to look it up, the translation yourself. Now, if you happen to dislike how I pronounce something, you could always email me, rabbiwalbeajima.com. So Rabbi Yosef Cairo, or Rabbi Yosef Cairo, he is born in Spain in 1488, which of course we know, the Spanish Inquisition, the expulsion of Jews is 1492, when he's a very young boy. And this is also viewed in Jewish history as a transitional time, because we have the era of Rishonim, which means the earlier sages which is, again, roughly from the year 1000 to the year 1500. And then we have from 1500 on is the era of Achronim, the later or latter sages, and that begins roughly the year 1500. And he's born 1488 in Spain, and his family has to go along with hundreds of thousands of other Jews. They have to go into exile. 
and they end up in Turkey, and eventually they end up in Tzfat, in northern Israel. And he's going to grow on to be one of the most significant and transformative Jews of his time, but really of all time. And he's going to be the catalyst for the next great development of oral Torah. And he's going to be the one to finally pull off the creation of the authoritative text and canon of Halacha. And it's important to stress that this is just one of the titanic figures of Jewish history. A total genius, a scholar of astounding proportions, and his his literary and halachic works are just unmatched in their influence. And he sought out in his quest to codify halacha because of this grave need. We need a definitive book that includes all of the applicable laws with all the explanations derived from their source in the Talmud, with all the disagreements and discussions and debates found in subsequent commentaries distilled to the bottom line. And initially, he wrote a comprehensive commentary on the Rambam. The Rambam, like we mentioned earlier, is called, or his 14 books are called Mishneh Torah, the repetition of Torah. If you look at any standard edition of the Rambam, you'll find the commentary of Rabbi Yosef Karo called Kesef Mishneh, which means double your money, really. It's a reference to what happens with the brothers and Joseph in, in Genesis. And what he does is he concludes the words of the Rambam by telling us where it is sourced in the Talmud. He's going to give us the explanation of the Rambam. He's going to give us the sources of the Rambam. And he's going to resolve many of the challenges posed against the Rambam. So we have this magnificent work, the Rambam, and we have a magnificent commentary written in all 14 books by Rabbi Yosef Cairo. But he doesn't stop there. He takes the work of the tour, remember the tour, the four tomb, the four pillars, the work of Rabbi Yaakov, the son of Rabbi Asher, the son of the Rosh, who organized halacha by a unique formula, Arachayim Yerodeya Evan Ezra Choshim Mishpat, and he says, I'm going to write a commentary on this. And what this commentary does, one of the most incredible works in, in of Jewish scholarship ever. This is called the Bet Yosef, the House of Joseph. That's the name of his commentary to the tour. And what he does is he takes every law discussed in the tour and he sources the law from the Mishnah, from the Talmud, from the Jerusalem Talmud, the Babylonian Talmud, the Bryce, the Tosef, the Sifra, Sifri, Michal, the Torah, Storanim, everything, where it comes from. And he says, well, is it universally accepted? Is it a machlokas? Is it a dispute? And then he would expound on the various opinions, including the ones that were omitted by the tour. And he would explain them, either via answers and explanations offered by others or offering his own answer as necessary. And he would also add laws that were not featured by the tour and explain them. In short, he created an encyclopedia of the Talmud and all the commentaries organized to perfection with rock-solid argumentation and analysis. And with every law, once the landscape of the matter is laid out, he begins to approach it by determining what the halacha is. So he lays out all the opinions and then he says, okay, I'm going to distill it for you. I'm going to give you the bottom line. 
And how indeed does he choose his bottom line? Because again, he's coming after the era of the Rishonim. And you have the Rambam and the Rif and the Rush and the Tu. You have all these works and all the other works that we mentioned. And again, that's just a fraction of the actual total body of literature. What's the bottom line? So what he does is like this. He says the, San- the Sanhedrin, they have a formula called the majority rules. If you have a dispute, let's say there's three judges, two of them rule in one way and one rules the other way, we follow the majority. If there's 23 judges, if there's 71 judges, depending on the size of the court, majority rules. I'm going to take the three pillars of halacha, the Rif al-Fasi, the Rambam, and the Rush, and I'm going to create this majority rules amongst those three. And in every law, I'm going to take these three opinions and whichever ruling, whichever position the majority of these three follow, that's going to be my conclusion. And you know what? If we can't arrive at a consensus amongst these three, then he would seek out the rulings of others, the Ramban, the Rashba, the Ran, the Mordechai, the Smag amongst others, and he would find, he would try to establish a consensus and use that to determine the halacha. Now this undertaking took many, many decades and incidentally became the first work that was printed in the printing press in the lifetime of its author. And that was in the year 1565. That's the work of the Bet Yosef, the House of Joseph. And then he wrote a third work. So we have the Kesef Mishnah, commentary all around them. We have the Bet Yosef, which is essentially a commentary on the tour, but really it's using the tour as just the the framework, so, so to speak, of writing this magisterial work of halacha. And then he writes just the conclusions of the Bet Yosef. And that work he titles Shulchan Aruch, the set table. This is just a synopsis of the conclusion of the Bet Yosef. You'll have pages and pages and pages of all the deliberation and bringing all the opinions and arguments and all the back and forth. And then he arrives at the bottom line. What's the consensus? Who do we follow? Which opinion is dominant? And that's just the conclusion. And he writes a brand new work called Shulchan Aruch, The Set Table, which includes just the conclusion. And it was designed to be read easily and to be memorized. So everyone should have halach on their fingertips. And in fact, his intention was to divide up into 30 parts. Everyone could review it each month, a section a day. And you have all of halacha just right there in the palm of your hands. Totally user-friendly. And we have, of course, the, the scholarly backing of every law in the Bet Yosef and just the conclusions in the Shulchan Aruch. This work, indeed, became the work that was accepted by all of Israel as the authoritative work of Halacha. But it didn't happen alone. There's another instrumental figure that assured that the Shulchan Aruch be accepted universally. And that was Rabbi Moshe Israelis. He was the rabbi of Krakow. And he lived at the same time as Rabbi Yosef Kara was living in, in, in Israel. So he lived in Poland, in Krakow, the rabbi of Krakow. And he is existing concurrently with Rabbi Yosef Karo, who's living in Israel. And as history would have it, these two giants on opposite sides of the globe 
they were both working on the same project to codify the halacha. And whereas Rabbi Yosef Karo, his system was to follow majority rules, take the three pillars of halacha and follow the majority in most cases. If not, we've tried try to achieve a consensus. Rabbi Moshe Israelis in Krakow had a different system of determining halacha. And his opinion or his philosophy was again guided by the Talmud. And that is that we follow the latter commentaries based upon the Talmudic principle that whenever we have earlier opinions and later opinions, and the later opinions differ from the earlier opinions, but they knew the earlier opinions and they disagreed nonetheless, it must mean that they had sufficient reason to disagree with the rulings of the earlier opinions, and thus we follow the later opinions. And thus, instead of following the Rif and the Ram and the Rush, he followed the later rulings, which were mostly of Ashkenazic orientation. So he has this project and he wants to organize all of Halacha. And then he goes to his Jewish bookstore and he sees this work called Shulchan Aruch. And in one of the most selfless and humble and dramatic decisions of Jewish history, he changes his project and says, I'm not going to write an independent book of Halacha. I am going to write glosses. I'm going to write a commentary, so to speak, or insertions, glosses, into the Shulchan Aruch, and I'm going to create a merged work with Rabbi Yosef Karo's Shulchan Aruch, and I'm going to write my insertions, and that will create a work that both the Ashkenazic and the Sephardic world can agree upon. And again, he followed the same format. Just like Rabbi Yosef Karo wrote a detailed version of the justification of his rulings, and then he wrote the synopsis in the Shulchan Aruch and the Set Table. So we have the Bet Yosef and the Shulchan Aruch, that's Rabbi Yosef Karo's work. Rabbi Moshe Israelis, the rabbi of Krakow, does the same thing. He writes the Darke Moshe, which is the parallel work of the Bet Yosef, which includes all the details and all the reasonings as to why he'll arrive at a conclusion. And then he inserts the glosses, the, the, the addition, so to speak, to the Shulchan Aruch, and that's just the succinct, distilled bottom line that goes alongside the Shulchan Aruch. And he called that work the Mapa, which means the, the tablecloth. So you have this, the set table, that's Rabbi Yosef Karo, and he, he just has the tablecloth, which goes on top of the table. Together, they create this table of halacha, this smorgasbord of halacha that's available for all of Israel to come and pick and identify and select and enjoy. This book, the Shulchan Aruch, which now today is called Shulchan Aruch, which includes the mapa, the tablecloth that's just written, it's, it's all mixed together. This became the codified and authoritative work of halacha accepted by both the lay people and by the scholars, and by all of Israel. Now, the scholars, even at the time when the Shulchan Aruch was written, they insisted that you never give a ruling just straight out of the Shulchan Aruch. You have to know where he's coming from. You have to follow the breadcrumbs from the Talmud and go to the Bet Yosef, really understand the reasoning for the conclusion before you make the ruling. Nevertheless, the Shulchan Aruch was indeed accepted by all. This became the code to codify 
the halacha of the Talmud. Now, I want to stress, this did not end the halachic development. It didn't end halacha or the, the quest to codify halacha, but it gave a framework for the new era of halachic works that it spawned. And very quickly, after the Shulchan was written, an enormous corpus of commentaries written upon it. The Shulchan Aruch became the centerpiece of Jewish law. It's the point of departure of all subsequent halachic works. And this is the great legacy of these two titans, Rabbi Yosef Karo in Tzfat in Israel, the Sephardic giant Rabbi Moshe Israelis in, in Krakow in Poland, the great Ashkenazic post-halachic arbiter. These were two unmatched visionaries and scholars that helped shape halacha for all future generations. Now, there was hundreds of commentaries written on top of Shulchan Aruch, the most famous of them being the Magad Avram, the Taz, the Shach, Berhetev, Primadradim, Machsis HaShekel. These are just some of many. There were also other major words to try to synthesize halacha that were written since the Shulchan Aruch, like the Mishnah Brua, the Chaya Adam, the Chachmas Adam, Krav HaChaim, Ketzer Shulchan Aruch, Aruch HaShulchan. These are all major names, Shulchan Aruch HaRav, which is the Shulchan Aruch written for the Hasidic communities to include all the details relevant to those communities. And these are just a few of the many, many, many incredible works of halacha since the times of the Shulchan Aruch. And essentially, this work continues until this very day. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of books of distillations of halacha on a single topic. You take a single topic and give you all the relevant details and all the relevant situations and scenarios where this law would apply. You have thousands upon thousands of works of halachic responsa. And you have monumental efforts to try to adapt the halachic principles to new modern applications. You know, the Shulchan Aruch never saw a refrigerator, uh, electricity, the internet, space travel, the modern economy, modern medicine. All of these new developments create halachic questions. And the principles may be found in the Talmud and the Rambam and the Rishonim and the Shulchan Aruch. And you have to understand the principle well enough to be able to apply it to a new situation. And again, there's all kinds of efforts to make halacha available and practical and user-friendly, and that continues till today. I think that there's a need for an authoritative halacha podcast. I have this dream. Someone's going to do this. To do 180 hours of halacha, to really cover all of practical halacha, and then divide it up into 360 parts, each one of them about a half hour, and then you can review it annually. And that way everyone can know all of halacha. Every day you dedicate, you know, a half hour, maybe listen to it at two times speed, so it's 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And that way you could, everyone could know all of halacha very easily on their commute, whatever. The Talmud tells us that if someone reviews halacha every single day, they're guaranteed to be a citizen of Olam Abba. Every time I meet a halachic expert, I say, you need to be the one to do it. Be the Rabbi Yosef Karo of your generation. Be the Rama of your generation. Do the Halacha podcast for all. And they all refuse. And the truth is, if I had the chops to do it, I'd do it myself, but I don't. But here's my guarantee to all. Whoever does this will be assured a golden ticket to paradise because whoever makes Halacha more available, more understandable, more easy to know and to absorb and to use for the masses is guaranteed 
a rubber stamp ticket to to heaven. So that's halacha. I hope we have a sense of what halacha is. And again, the simple definition is the practical. What to do, how to behave, how to live based upon the Torah, the written Torah, the oral Torah. And the answers are all found in the Talmud and the associated literature. But it's not spelled out in the Talmud. The Talmud does not finish and conclude and give us the actual bottom line. We have to extract from the Talmud the halacha. And over the past 1,500 years, the most talented and brilliant minds of our world really were dedicated to doing that. And we saw in the era of the Rishonim, tremendous flourishing of halachic literature. Multitudes of commentaries in the Talmud, the explosion of response literature, the first efforts to try to systematize halacha. Of course, chief among them is the magisterial work of the Rambam. And then at around the year 1500, a new era dawned, the era of the Achronim. And in the 16th century, the Shulchan Aruch was codified. And halacha will never again be the same. Again, it did not cap halacha development, but it gave a framework and the organization and distillation and clarification and systematization of halacha continues until today. My email address is rabbiwalbejim.com. I look forward to hearing your questions, your comments, your feedback of all sorts.